All right, is it coming in at the top? Today on the show, we have Steve Dawson. You might know Steve from Dolly Varden or his solo career or maybe as a side player in a plethora of different bands. But not only that, Steve's a really cool guy. He's a down-to-earth, insightful, deep-thinking individual who's also a teacher. He teaches at Old Town School of Folk Music in Chicago, he teaches a songwriting course. And not only that, he's got a book, a book called Take It to the Bridge, where he takes the best of his lessons and the most efficient that he's found throughout the years and shares those exercises with you. Steve's got a new album coming out. It's called At the Bottom of the Canyon in the Branches of a Tree. We're going to listen to the song 22 Rubber Bands.
22 rubber bands at the bottom of the canyon in the branches of a tree. Steve Dawson. The album's out now on all streaming platforms. What was cool about this interview was that there was a little, there was more mishaps than maybe in some other ones. And I became aware of his book, Take It to the Bridge, the week of, and I ordered it off of Amazon in a hurry to try to get it and read it before I talked with Steve because I knew if someone had a songwriting book and I was about to interview the songwriter, there would definitely be questions about the book. Um, so I was bummed out because I didn't get the book in time. Um, but it was all right. We had the we had the chat and it was going good. And then he had the he had the bounce because he had a lesson to do because he's a real deal working musician. And uh, he said, why don't we pick it up later? And I'm like, yeah, cool, that's a good idea, because then I can read the book. And two days later, I got the book and read it in a hurry, and then we did part two. So this interview is broken up over a week. You're going to hear the big chunk, which is uh, the initial conversation, and then uh, mostly pertaining to the new record and his career up until. And then you're going to hear part two, which is a little more songwriter-focused, um, with more questions about his book, Take It to the Bridge. If you guys can like, rate, review, subscribe, and follow the podcast on all the podcast platforms, it helps me keep talking to awesome guests and sharing those insights with you. So without further ado, Steve Dawson. So let's get into it. Um, what can you tell me about Miss Terry? Ah, awesome. Um, Linda Terry was my first guitar teacher. In seventh grade, we moved to Idaho from California, and um, I we we arrived late, so registering for classes, a lot of the, a lot of the elective classes were filled, and the the counselor guy said, "Well, you could take guitar." I was like, "Well, I don't have a guitar," but uh, so they f- figured out a rental for me and. Um, it ended up being like a life-changing thing. And Miss Terry was the, an Idaho fiddle champion. She was a, a hippie lady. This was 1977 um, in a very sort of conservative world. She was a, a very different, very, very different. And the classes were in the basement. I remember the principal used to come down and look, look in on the class and just shake his head. <laughs> you know, she had us had a singing you know, peace and love songs. She loved John Denver so, so much. And <laughs> she would have us sing sunshine on your shoulders. And then, you know, a bunch of, you know, or a bunch of 13 years old, 13 year or 14 year old right. olds. And um, she'd be like, okay, now what does it mean to feel the sunshine on your shoulders? Let's really think about this and feel it and close your eyes. And so she, she made me think of songs completely differently than I'd ever thought of them before and that, that they were important and that they were about life experience. And, um, she just loved music so much and she was so encouraging. So all those things, um, made me just want to make music and be a better guitar player and write songs, all those things, you know, I, I credit her with basically, getting me started on this whole thing. That's amazing. It's crazy um, to think, like, I, I, when you when you analyze a song, you kind of just hear it, especially at that age. You, you're not really, yeah. like, diving into what is it to have sunshine on your shoulders. I, I don't know. It's a happy-sounding thing. I, 
the right. really but to really kind of get past that and at that age to be able to kind of open your mind in that way like yeah. it's it's that 13 14 what's that like middle schoolish mm-hmm. yeah you said seventh grade seventh grade um yep. so you're not really like you're still trying to be cool <laughs> trying to fit sure, in totally you're not really yeah. figuring yourself out yet so to find a teacher that can kind of like get you into that form of thinking through through a class that you fell into it's pretty outstanding yeah no it was it was pretty radical she was um she was something else and i thought of reaching out to her but for some reason i haven't you know i i but i i keep every time it comes up i think oh, i should reach out to her and let her know and then i I don't, but I, maybe this will inspire me to finally actually do that. That'd be awesome. <laughs> I'm sure she would appreciate it. And with the body of work that you've compiled since then, we'll, we'll have her homework cut out for her to catch up yeah, that she right. hasn't been following. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. And, like, it, it, it's interesting. I mean, I guess with John Denver's works at the time, that's when he was kind of in his prime. Oh, yeah. And, like... Yeah. As far as a songwriter, you, th- that's what a great place to start. I think so because they're the raw material of song is so strong in those. I mean, the melodies. You know, I teach guitar now in Chicago, and we do John Denver songs, especially for people first starting out, because they're usually three basic chords, um, pretty straightforward structures and strums and all that kind of stuff. But the melodies are so good, like leaving on a jet plane or sunshine right. on my shoulders. They're just these sort of timeless, beautiful melodies. He really had a gift for melody and that, you know, and the lyrics are, um, they're evocative and they have nice imagery. So yeah, as far as the raw material for song, it, it was a good place to start for sure. Right, there's no burying the lead in a John Denver song. You know what I mean? Right, like, right, so, uh, right. Uh, leaving on a jet plane, I get what's going on. <laughs> totally, totally. But so, so coming from it, coming from that, as far as a place of songwriting, um, what what was the next step for you? Well, once I was playing guitar, all the relatives for my birthday or for Christmas would send me songbooks. Like that was back then, you know, there was no internet and people. So I would got, you know, the Simon and Garfunkel songbook. I got the Paul Simon or the Neil Young, you know, I got a, they would have these books of the, the whole album of Harvest in a right. book, you know, yeah. or the James Taylor greatest hits song book. And so I just sort of gobbled those up. I would just get them and, uh, check the records out of the library. If, if they were all, weren't already in my dad's collection and, uh, just learn every song. And, um, the big one for me, the one I begged for was this Beatles complete song book that was for sale at the local music store, but it was something like $25. And I thought, Oh, that's way too much. Hmm. But I got it for, for Christmas. And I, you know, I was a Beatles fan since I was a little kid. They were, they were my favorite band as a little kid. So I knew all those songs by heart. So then to open that up and try to play those. Plus that was a pretty big step up from, from, you know, 
those three and four chord songs, the Beatle right. chords, there's a lot of fancy chords in there. So that was, um, I had to push myself. That's, I think I, I made myself learn bar chords so I could play, um, I am a walrus. So, cause you know, you can't play, it's, it just moves in whole steps with all right. those bar chords. And they had the little diagrams in the book. So if I didn't know, like, you know, how to make a C minor or something, I was like, well, there's the picture of it. I just had to figure out how to make that happen. It's a, the Beatles. It's interesting because they come from the, the rock basic, the three chord thing. But the Beatles that kind of everyone knows is this vast like studio, like session group that has these immense harmonies and well thought out. You like, yeah, there's as far as a band that's done it, that's it. And if you're going to if you're going to be moved to the next spot, it'd be from diving into them. That makes sense. That makes yeah. sense. Was it? And it's it's songwriting, too, like going linear with that like um when did you start was it after like dissecting these Beatles songs and getting the i'm pretty sure i've seen that that uh complete song book right it's black on the front just, exactly okay yeah it's yep like, thick yeah um <laughs> but um for moving on from that like when did you start writing your own stuff was it from picking apart these Beatles songs and like uh, this bar chord i can move this and like and I, I now have the power of whole steppage or was it like <laughs> well, later? Sort of. I think okay. the first songs I was writing were just joke songs to, to crack people up, like crack friends up or like, I, yeah. you know, make up new words to leave it on a jet plane <laughs> and just kind of, but then, um, then, I don't remember exactly what inspired me to first write, start writing sort of, you know, my own songs that weren't silly songs that were like, for lack of a better word, that were serious or real, yeah. real songs. Um, it might've been Neil Young. I mean, I just, I, I loved Neil Young then and I love him now. And I, those songs sort of spoke to me in a way that a lot of others didn't. And I thought, oh, this is, you could write about anything and you could write about your own feelings and your own thoughts and, and, you know, sing in your own voice. So I started doing that sometime around there and then, yeah, trying to write Beatles songs, but it didn't, it didn't even occur to me that the Beatles were even something approachable as, as something I could ever possibly recreate because those songs just seemed, like you said, the the sound of those records was so immense and sort of fixed that there's just like, it didn't sound like anything I could recreate or create right. on just a guitar. Yeah. It, it just blew my mind to think, I don't know if I know if I even thought like how they possibly could have done it. It was just like, that's not, but, but like Neil Young, like harvest, like old man or something like that. It's like, Oh, well that sounds like a guitar. And, somebody singing or James Taylor, like those early James Taylor records. It's like, Oh, I, I can make it sound basically like that, you know? Right. No, that makes sense. It's a, it's an approachable thing. And like, yeah, there's a, the, you can boil it down. Um, kind of going through your, your discography, which is, man, your, your output is immense. Like, Oh, thanks. You're the, the, I got questions on that later, but like, 
<laughs> and like it bounces everywhere throughout your solo career and um in the band's career but like um was there a particular beetle because i kind of that that drew you in not the like i want to elaborate more on the neil young thing but like yeah i kind of hear some lennon-y melody tendencies oh well i would like to believe that i mean okay. i I think I like them all. I mean, I think as, as an individual, I probably identify with George Harrison more just because he music became kind of a spiritual pursuit for him. Um, but as far as musicality, I boy, I I love all three of them. Right. That mean Paul's incredible sense of melody, John Lennon's ability to. I don't know, really get to the heart of things. It's got a, it's got a darkness to it. That's really, um, compelling. George Harrison has this kind of sweetness, but even he wrote, you know, I don't know. The, the thing about George Harrison that's really fascinating is you, you can really see the progression of his playing and writing through the course of the Beatles, which is, pretty fascinating there's not too many artists you get to really experience their growth that right that directly like paul mccartney seemed to have hatched into the world like this <laughs> yeah. immensely talented and gifted artist that just like oh he's always been able to do that somehow but with george he was not he wasn't all that great you know and then he got better and better and better and tried lots of different things and it's just really interesting so yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, I, I love. I maybe as a songwriter, just as the raw material of writing, I guess I probably like John Lennon's songs a little, a little better than the others. But his song, my friend Phil Angotti in town here did a, probably in 2019 did a John Lennon birthday show where they just did. Oh, that's cool. Songs from all eras, you know, yeah. even well into his solo, and it was just when you pull them out and play them all back to back and, and not in chronological order, just kind of like, you know, early Beatles stuff and then solo career stuff. And it's just, it's, it was just completely staggering to think of the body of work of, of John Lennon and just like, wow, that's another incredible song. Right. So, right. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's just, I don't know. It's just a going through it. I kind of, Made little, I make little notes to myself when I'm studying someone to to talk to them and like, like that's kind of like a Lennony melody note. Like, yeah, I should have wrote down the song. Fuck. Um, like, <laughs> <laughs> but um, but yeah, I, it's it's interesting. Like with the with a band like that, when you because you can see them as a unit, right? And with any artist, usually like how you're saying, you're seeing the end all be all. You're seeing the top of the game at that time, and like. Mm -hmm. When you can trace someone's like a, like progression to to that point, it's almost it's in I think more endearing. And maybe that's just yeah. coming from a musical perspective. Like, okay, that didn't that they got it really together on this record. This is cool. And maybe that's yeah. like seeing your friends play music and seeing them get to the their influence. They say they have like, I really love the Beatles and. Your new record sounds like it could have been a Beatles thing. Cool. Right, right, right. Exactly. The maybe so that's maybe that's the that um, being in the the kitchen perspective type deal, but with mm -hmm. the Beatles, you kind of like you have this this chunk and you can tear it apart because you can see the solo career and you can be like, oh, that's what Paul did. You know what right. I mean? Like, right. there's not too many bands 
like well like the Beatles at all together or apart but like it's right. really cool because you can dissect it in that way even though it sucks that they broke up but you get that, that cool. no I think that's really valid and I never thought of it that way but yeah the each of the individuals you can really yeah you can really analyze them because they did make records by themselves so he's like oh I see yeah yeah that's a good point I never thought of that Thanks. Um, I don't know. Uh, so kind of the shift back to like the Neil Young approach. So here's this, and I think a, a big step for anyone who wants to achieve any type of goal is finding the things to, that they can do, right? The little steps, not the big jumps because right. that, that seems yes. too impossible. So you're looking at these, uh, Neil Young records and like, this is a guy in a guitar. And like, when did like the, the layer of like comedic, uh, um, uh, comfort, Dis- dissipate was it trying to emulate that and like because like i yeah i was talking with um uh who was it i can't remember i'm blanking right now who i had this conversation with but there's this like there's this uh this comfort behind comedy it's easier to kind right. of go out and like do something with intent and like but the intent being being able to be written off as silly if it doesn't land like right <laughs> was a right did did you find that like was it there's yes like, yes me to, okay. I, I think I think pretty quickly yeah. pretty quickly I I mean because I was coming out of we moved to Idaho because m- my mom tried to kill herself in California and put herself in the hospital and we had to go live with my dad I mean it was yeah. it was awful there was and it was never really discussed it was just this kind of buried horrible thing. So to me, when I started hearing these records of people like, you know, there's all this sadness and loneliness in Neil Young records and Jackson Brown and James Taylor and Joni Mitchell. There's all this kind of sorrow in there that really spoke to me and I found it really comforting Um, and and also like real like the there was so much not spoken about in my family at that time, even though there was all this trouble, no one ever talked about it. So to have, have these songs speaking to real things, it it was like, it felt like, Oh, this is, this is reality. These are people actually talking about reality. And it, it drew me in, in a way that um, nothing else did. And, and I, at some point wanted to radiate that back. Like the way that those records made me feel, which was, I I can't describe it, but I wanted to be a part of that somehow. So I started trying to, yeah, trying to emulate the way that those records made me feel, which was not in any way funny. It was very, very serious. I don't know if serious is a terrible word, but it was just trying to get to the heart of what I was thinking and feeling through music and, and songs. So, yeah. It actually really kind of hits home because in my family, there was a, you know, we had like, there's a lot of alcoholism and a lot of things Mm -hmm. that like, when when there's a real issue, it's addressed, but then not addressed. Like, right. there's this, this uh, oh, shit, here's a thing, and then, like, it's all right. 
you know, no, yeah. no, it's we're going to go to the thing now. Or it's it's weird that a uh, and like falling into like I was describing like teaching and seeing like kids go through all this stuff and like realizing that the only way to get through something is to address it at the moment yeah. it's happening and like if not that it kind of dissipates not not the trauma or the uh the sincerity of or since whatever um like the seriousness of what has happened but the moment to make that shift or to yeah. begin that as opposed to the the the, repre- uh, the, the repression of of right. those feelings which comes right after you start to make it comfy and like um so that's that that really hits home cuz i um I kind of not as intensely as what you've been just described because that was like that's heavy. How how old were you when that was happening? Well, it was around the same time. So okay, so this is uh, like, like 12, 13, 14. Okay. Yeah. So right yeah. when you're starting to figure out who you are and go down that path, and like that is that why you guys moved to Idaho? Yep. Okay. Yep. I mean, basically, it's a little more complicated, but basically, yeah. Okay. And was that a yeah. big shift from California? Oh, yeah. Yeah? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, from sunny San Diego. Right. Uh, and, you know, I could walk to school, and I had a lot of friends. And then in Idaho, we lived out on a dirt road with nobody else around. Okay. Yeah. I'd have to... I had to ride a bus a long way to get to school and then it would drop me back home and I wouldn't see anybody till the next day. Right. I mean, I did go to this uh, guitar songwriting camp with Richard Thompson in 2018. And he was talking about, cause someone said like, how did you, how did you learn how to play so well? And he's like, people have no idea how incredibly boring the Midlands of England is. <laughs> He's like, I would get home from school and there was literally nothing to do. And he says, so I just played guitar. I played guitar for hours and hours every day because it was so com- incredibly boring. So That's the beauty of, of being <laughs> away from of everything because you got that, that, that time to hone in on what 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 you want to hone in even though you don't want to uh, it's not ideally right. what you'd be doing at that moment <laughs> like, right so i had all these songbooks i had a guitar and that was it you know and a record player so i just yeah i went all in now that makes sense and then it's as a way to pass time you're developing these skills and like yeah. at least kind of putting yourself in a, a place that may feel more real than everything else that's going on. Oh, and then the, man, that's, yeah, that's, uh, I'm, I'm losing my train of thought with it. <laughs> but it makes sense. It makes sense. It makes sense. That's where it would go. Um, right. So kind of going from that, like, was it like moving out of that situation or indulging in that situation? Was there a point where it became more real and these things were addressed? family-wise, or did it just kind of coast at that? No, no. It's never really been addressed, ever, even now. And in fact, a lot of the songs on the new record are kind of about that and just kind of trying to let go of all that and forgive and move move along. But yeah, it's no, it's never, yeah, 
my family's very, very stuck and very, yeah. But even, you know, at the time, like the seventies or even into the eighties, like people didn't go to therapy. People didn't, no one talked about this stuff. It was just right. like, yeah, get over it, you know? <laughs> so <laughs> figure it but, out. Uh, yeah. 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 It doesn't, so. doesn't quite work as long as it's, <laughs> it may be, maybe in <laughs> one person's mind, but there's, Right. For how big was your family? Uh, just me and my sister. My sister's older okay. than me, and then my my dad, stepmom, my mom. Gotcha. Yeah, it's really it's a pretty little family. It's still, that's four four minds. Right. <laughs> they, right. The, well, that makes that makes. I mean, this new record in the bottom of a canyon, in the branches of a tree, or in a branch of a tree. Mm-hmm. Um. That imagery of what you just described of being kind of stuck in this thing and not kind of the bottom of the canyon. You know what I mean? Like, I don't know if that song's directly about this issue, but like that imagery with it and the title of the album for that, that, that really makes sense. And I think it's a beautiful way to put it. Yeah. Kind of. I mean, that song is kind of, I mean, there's the verse, the verse about my sister and I, and that we were, that song was originally called my sister. Was it me and my sister or something like that? But um, yeah, something like that. <laughs> Was it with a the kind of okay? They kind of jump into this because I found this album really, really beautifully done. Like, and it's interesting Thank the you. comparison from this this newest record from um, Bonsai Funeral, like with with that jazz ensemble like behind you and like this whole like different tonality and this kind of brings yeah. it back home to almost more like I don't it's it's a little more elaborate than just Neil Young and a guitar but like kind of like shifting from like a whole ensemble of a thing where like that the the bonsai funeral like really like I I don't know why but it made me think of like it like a Dylan record with instead of an organ, you have this cool vibe player and like, oh, cool, yeah, it, like and just how your vocal approach was at least on the the first song from um, the Eyes Upon, like it starts off with this melody, then hits hard. It, it made me think of like uh, that type of dynamic that you would see in a in a Dylan tune when he went electric and had the organ okay. behind him, but it was like oh, this okay. beautiful jazz ensemble that would break down and go into a would go into changes like they they'd be playing like how that right before we get into the new record how that project come about um i have known jason Adeshevitz is the the vibraphonist you're talking about he's a friend of mine we worked together at a record store here for a while and i became a fan of him and a bunch of the people chicago chicago has has had a really rich um, sort of improvised music, free jazz, jazz scene. And I became a fan of a lot of the those musicians. I got to know a lot of them through the record store. It was a jazz record store. Um, and I was seeing Jason's band called Roll Down, which had Jason Redke in it. It had Frank Rosalie and um, it just crossed my mind. What would happen if I had these guys play behind me when I was, you know, singing, basically singing my songs, but I had 
this ensemble backing me. It just crossed my mind. I sort of put it back in the back of my mind. That was this was probably in the '90s when I saw them. Um, and then I had to get the nerve up to approach them about doing it. But once I did, they were all like, "Yeah, let's do it." So I we played some shows, and um, it kept getting better and better. And so then I decided to write songs specifically with that project in mind and make a record with it. And that was in the, like around 2013, I guess. Those cats like that, that's, it's weird. It's a different a jazzer compared to like a, a singer songwriter. There's an equal amount of work that goes into it. You know what I mean? Like as far as like the artistry and like the, uh, mm-hmm. the, uh, the um, craftsmanship of, of shedding, right? Hitting the shed right. to run scales and run over changes compared to hitting the shed and like writing, I imagine. Like, oh, yeah. But like, um, so the kind of, but there's this uh, like uh, admiration for both angles. Like, man, if I just shed it on changes, I could, I could hang with those guys. Or, man, <laughs> if I just like wrote some of my own shit, I can, <laughs> I can hang with those guys. But like, um, <laughs> So I can see where that would be intimidating to reach out. Yeah, <laughs> but that record. Well, and also, I mean, sorry, I was gonna I, say that record uh, slams, but <laughs> oh, thank you, thank you. the The biggest difference is their approach to time. I think, like rock players, are a little more. I don't know what the right word is because rigid is not a good word, but it's a little. It's close to being accurate, but it doesn't. It's maybe time is a little more straight up and down. And with the improvising guys, time is a little more fluid and mm. a little more sort of washy. Yeah. And in, in a in a really nice way so that things feel things feel a little more I can't describe it other than just kind of like I I've described it as feeling like floating. That makes sense. <laughs> There's a floating quality yeah. to it. Um, so yeah, that, I mean, I went to the Berkeley College of Music in Boston in the '80s, and the jazz musicians then were very snobby and mm-hmm. very disdainful of rock and pop and that sort of stuff. And I, I really kept it under kept it under wraps that I was a singer songwriter for the first year or so there because I would it would be you know. I would be frowned upon. I remember having a, a Van Morrison cassette sitting out on my desk once and someone saw it and were like, Van Morrison. Ugh. And that, so I was like, Oh shit, gotta hide the, gotta hide the singer songwriters from these people. Um, so it was actually really refreshing. The, this, the Chicago guys have none of that, none of that. Like, you know, Shevitz, Jason and Shevitz can go on and on about the band as much as, you know, John Coltrane. And I just, I love that. They're very open-minded, very much about like, let's make this work. And um, yeah, the more I've gotten to play with them, the more I've experienced that, that it's, it's always a yes and (laughs) situation, right? So it's, it, it just feels good. That's beautiful, and that's I, the essence of jazz or, or or music in general should be that it shouldn't be a um, 
uh, include or uh, this this uh, not including others like it should be right. welcoming of it like it's easier what what can you do with one chord you can do a lot with one chord yeah i know and like as opposed to and even jazzers can be like well i can i can hyperimpose this harmony on one chord makes your life easier guys come on <laughs> like <laughs> That's that's awesome. That so that's so get leading up to to Boston. What like from the Neil Young songs, right? And like diving into it and relating and finding your own, in starting to write your own. When did like the idea that taking these songs you started to write and performing become a thing? Mm, yeah. Well, I was you know in high school. It was a little high school. My graduating class was like seventy people. And I, we, there were music on, what do you call it, like recitals in the auditorium every every semester, I guess. There was like an end of semester. The band would play, the choir would play. And um, I don't remember how, but I ended up being like, I would come out and sing a song during those. So I think those are the first public performing situations. And I remember being nervous, but also being relatively confident, too, and enjoying it. And it started occurring to me, oh, this might be something I want to do. But I don't remember being particularly good at performing. It, it was just I kind of enjoyed the feeling of it. Um, and then I started playing occasionally in like, I mean, I was too young to be playing in bars, but my guitar teacher, I, I, there was miraculously, there was this really great uh, guitar player that was doing lessons in Idaho. I don't know how he ended up there, but he, and he started occasionally getting me gigs. And I, so I, even as I was underage, I played, I was playing in with this country band named Cadillac Carl and the Road Rangers. I was nice. subbing for my guitar teacher as lead guitar in this country band in at the Silver Dollar Saloon in Bellevue, Idaho. And, uh, or I'd be a like he accompanied some singers in some bars. We were relatively close to Sun Valley, Idaho. So they, there was some fancy restaurants that would have a live singer, guitar player, and I would occasionally do those gigs subbing for him. Um, so it wasn't me performing my own music, but I was performing and getting experience playing shows. Right. Um, in a vast, like that's not just like to, to, to play lead in a country group and uh, the back a singer songwriter or back a, a singer like those are two different mindsets you got to be in as far as performance yeah. and like two different positions right. to learn to take. Right. So, yeah. I've always loved like one of my favorite things I do is to play bass in a band. Yeah. Um, you know, I just, I love all aspects of music. You know, I love playing bass. I love trying to play drums. I love singing harmonies. I love writing songs. I like trying to play lead guitar. I mean, it's just uh, the whole, uh, the whole, everything about it is fascinating, every aspect of it. And I just can't get enough. So, you know, I think, yeah, that was, it was super fun playing 
with Cadillac Carl and the Road Rangers <laughs> in this little divey bar in Idaho. Super fun, you know, and a huge learning experience because, you know, they were they were veterans and, you know, you, uh, they would, you know, they would kind of, when they turn around give me a nod and, and say like, nice job. It just felt so good, you know? Right. But then they'd also pull me aside and say like, yeah, you don't, you don't need to play so much on that part. So he's like, you know, they were very kind and kind of encouraging like, Hey, look at the kid, you know, let's, yeah. the kid's doing okay. So, <laughs> um, I didn't start playing my own songs really until I was in college like i didn't play song but the songs i was writing for people mm. was that stump the host when you started doing your own stuff oh no it was a little before that in, in boston i was still i would uh, i would just play in a bar i'd sit in a bar and sing songs and cover mostly covers and then add in my own songs gotcha um stump the host was when i moved to chicago um in the late eighties and started the band stump the host. And that again, and that, then that was performing all my own songs with a band. Okay. So from shedding it, from doing the gigs in Boston, learning and writing your own stuff and then moving to Chicago, that's, that's in finding the group. Yeah. Okay. Wow. I mean, that, those bar gigs like that, or such like a, uh, a build me up, destroy me situation. <laughs> like yeah, when you're totally. <laughs> when you're playing in the the back of the room and you you play the Van Morrison song and everyone's like yeah, and then like yeah. you do your own song that you put way more time into and they're kind of like yeah, the, the din <laughs> of the din of conversation rises. Right, yeah, right, sure. right. Wow, that's a beautiful way to put that. <laughs> <laughs> Did you um in Boston like through college did you take any songwriting courses or was the songwriting courses just like from studying other songwriters on your own Just from self study okay. the the guy you might know this guy named Pat Patterson who writes these lyric book the craft of lyric writing he he was the poetry teacher at Berkeley like you know because okay. they have a you can get a a regular degree there but they have to like to cover like the english right. the english department was pat pattison teaching poetry you know and the science department was teaching acoustics and stuff like that oh, but that's um sick. yeah um <laughs> so i took pat's poetry writing classes which i found really helpful in terms of just uh this the mu the musicality of language and he was great. He was great. And then he started teaching uh, a lyric analysis class. I think that was the beginning of the songwriting department at Berkeley, but it called the songwriting department yet. It was just being sort of being born and it's become a whole department now. But um, it was at that point, it was just lyric analysis as part of the English department. Hmm. And was it? But that was really helpful. Yeah, did like dissect stuff like symbolically, like how like yep yeah okay yep. interesting. Yeah, use of language, use of metaphor, sound of the sound of language, the uh, structure, like you know verses, choruses, bridges, um, all that kind of stuff. Yeah. How much of that kind of ended up in take it to the bridge? 
the book you wrote on songwriting? Some, some, so, okay. a lot of that book is based on the classes I teach. Okay. Um, which is, I just, I, at that point I had been teaching songwriting at the old town school of folk music here in Chicago for probably 10 years. And it was just the sort of the best of the stuff I would, I had learned through teaching Okay. the stuff that seemed to resonate with people and the stuff that uh, people have found most helpful um, for their own writing. And I'm sure there's a little bit of the stuff I learned from Pat Pattison in there for sure. Now I'm super, I ordered it in like, I don't know, something happened. So I, I'm supposed to get it tomorrow, which I'm going to really oh. bummed out about. Cause I, okay. I'm like, <laughs> like, oh, I'm going to have the conversation today, but I won't be able to, yeah. I'm going to have more questions about it. <laughs> Cause I've been uh, uh -huh. personally just diving into uh, reading a bunch of books on songwriting because like, oh, it's, cool. it's interesting. Like there's not, um, with that or it, just m music education in general, right? You learn all the, uh, how to organize notes, how everything works, like as far as academically, but you don't really learn the creative aspect of it. Like, and maybe right. that, that, maybe I'm speaking for me, from my experience. I don't know. If, hopefully it was different for you, but I feel like a lot of times you like, you learn how harmony and stuff is structured and like, but when it comes to writing your own stuff or doing your own composition, it's kind of like, okay, well, you know, I showed you what other people did. And like, there, yeah. there's a, almost a weird, uh, uh, um, disconnect where like sure the analyzing of something and seeing how it works and like and then applying it to your own emotions and like learning how to express right. yourself through it isn't as as addressed and like and I, I feel like with the songwriting course that's kind of where it's all into or like what I've at least the few books I've read on uh, the songwriting through the shutdown the, the self studies mm -hmm. um it, it kind of a lot of them a lead the the question is blank it's like here's the premise and then fill in the blank type deal not like um yeah but you know what i mean like well i mean yes most songwriters me included talk about songwriting as being um a little mysterious right um and so that aspect of it, you can't, you can't teach that, yeah. but you can, you can help someone to get into that sort of space where things appear. Um, and that's what I try to do. I try to have people do free writing. I try to have them, you know, play a chord progression and then just start singing things off the top of their head. And a lot of times when you do that, a phrase will pop out and who knows where it comes from. Right. I mean, it right. just, and then you try to just follow that. Some of the best interviews along those lines are with Paul Simon, who's, who seems very, very willing to talk about that process of just letting the song go where it wants to go. So um, I, I recommend people read that. And the creative process is, yeah, it's still a mystery, which is, it's, it's, it's great. I love that it's a mystery. Um, 
and there's a lot of books about the creative, you know, trying to get yourself into that open space where things can happen. Right. But yeah, you can't, you can't say, well, here's how you write a song. Right. And, you know, I would be dubious of anyone who said that because it is a mystery. It's interesting. It's um, so I guess maybe to rephrase kind of where I was going with it is like the, so I can't remember if, if it's the analogy of the cave or, or the trial of Socrates, but uh, there's this bit out of a, a Plato writing where it's like Socrates is trying to find the truth and he goes to all these people to find the truth and uh, he goes to the poet and the poet can't have the truth because the, the poet is just open to perception and puts it out. Basically, mm-hmm. like it, it, they write down whatever it, um, muses they pick up, and like it's crazy that that's an ancient Greek thing, but that makes so much sense with like totally. writing in general. That the fact yeah, that yeah. it's still a mystery, and yep. like so, how important how important is it to accept failure as far as like <laughs> writing, right? Wow, how yeah. how do you? Like be, to be open to this, right? You got to accept that it's not going to be the best thing ever. You're just going to write a thing and move on. Yeah, that's hard. <laughs> um, I guess I try not to think about that. I try yeah. not. I try not to let myself go there. The frustration can definitely kick in, but maybe that's the one thing that experience of doing it for so many years is that you trust you trust yourself and you trust the process enough that um, if it doesn't work, it's not the end of the world. And I do remember like in high school having songs not work and being just like, I couldn't sleep. I couldn't stop thinking about it. I kept trying to solve it. Like I could not let go of a song that wasn't working. It was driving, it would drive me insane. And now if song's not working, I'm like, oh, well, oh, well, whatever. <laughs> It's not like I'm not going to write another one. So I guess experience is the antidote to that. Yeah, and I guess maybe failure is not the right word for it, but knowing when to uh, to move on from it and let it go and well, see where it goes. That is hard. Yeah. Especially when a song has a part, like there's a part of it that you really like, like, oh, that's really good, and then the rest of it is... Actually, there's another Paul Simon interview where he yeah. says that no no song is – it's very, very rare to get 100% on a song. There's a, there's almost always something in every song that where you're like, well, that could have been better. And to hear him say that was really helpful because I'm like, right. oh, well, yeah, definitely. Like I could go through every song and point out, well, yeah, I wish that part was better, but the rest of it's pretty good. So, I, you know, at some point you have to let go. Right. <laughs> Or you know, or you'd never release them. And I and I, I do know people who are very talented as songwriters who never release anything because they want them to be perfect, and they they will never be perfect. It's it's interesting because there's that admiration for someone who who seeks perfection, but also that that is such an impossible like feat. It's a, it's just as yeah. admirable for someone who is puts out what they what they made and where it's at and like you <laughs> usually that moves a little bit more there's something more about something that's not perfect something that's a reachable yeah. that resonates i think more with people uh, yeah maybe i should say the i statements that resonates with me <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Yeah, um, yeah. Do you have a what's your like? Do you have a creative routine? Because like going through you, there's Dolly Varden has like six albums. You have four, and uh, this is about to be the fifth, right? Like, um, there's an immense amount of writing that those aren't the you know those are the cream of the crop during each time period. I imagine like. Well, it's stretched out over thirty years. Right. It's not, it's not as much as it seems, I guess. I, I that the, the, Jimi Hendrix only had three records. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, I get despite some, you know, whatever. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Um, but you know, do you have like a, a routine that you do every day? Do you write every day? Do you like strum like out and just like do a mumble melody every day? Do you have like mm. a I wish I did. Yeah. I um no, I go through I go through periods where I write a lot and periods where I don't. Okay. And but I'm I play music every day for hours because I'm I'm teaching and recording. I have a little recording studio and I record other people and um so I my hands are on instruments for many hours every day. Um and it doesn't take too long for a song to get started. So even if like if a student doesn't show up or someone's running late or I have a half hour between one thing and the next, I'm sitting there with a guitar. A lot of times something will pop out. A lot of songs get started that way. But I don't have I don't have a steady creative practice. I wish I did, but I don't. <laughs> Imagine that would be it's it's hard to do. Like I personally have been trying to install one for myself. Yeah. And like it it goes really well for a while, then it stops, and then I have to like. <laughs> <laughs> but it's yeah. like how you're saying it's something so you're you're. It's it could be a blank day where you have nothing, or it can be a very inspired day, and like, uh, where something pops up, and then you're like, oh, that makes sense, and it's like how to go back to the magic of it, and like try to like train it's not trained to try to teach someone to hear it and be in that moment of it is it more of a thing like that if like there's a spark of an idea and the like as far as like a, a skill set to de develop as a songwriter is like being able to be in that moment with that spark and let it become yes. a flame or is yes. it the the ability to start that spark I, or is it both i don't know if that's a good question or if that makes sense. Well, one thing I've noticed that that is important is to have some kind of a deadline mm, okay, because otherwise you can just kind of free float and put it off and be like, ah, oh, I'm not feeling like it right now. But if you have, like I have a, we have monthly get together with other songwriters that um, we've continued through the pandemic online most of the songs on the new record were written for like were first appeared in that group. And, and if we had, if it's going to be on a Friday night, you know, Friday during the day, sometimes that day, I don't have a song yet and I'll, I'll make one up for, for the group. <laughs> so, and I hear that in my songwriting classes too. It's like without the deadline, people would not be writing. So there's something, maybe that has to do more with adulthood Right. That certainly was not the case when I was a when I was a teenager. I, um, you know, I just wrote all the time just because I wanted to and felt like it. Um, but now it seems like I need. I have no idea what just happened. I, uh, I 
I got an incoming call or something. But uh, okay. Yeah, sorry about that. Uh, it's hard when you do the switch over. I I do that all the time with my phone. I'm like, ah, hold on. I'm like, and then I'm talking to another person. I'm like, oh, Steve. Uh, oh, hi, Steve. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. But um, sorry about that. Oh, it's all good. Um, so adulthood kicks in. Stuff gets harder to to uh to yeah. at least have time to do. I think it's where that's where I lost you. Yeah, and just the deadline. The deadline I find for myself and for others is really helpful in just making you do it. I think like it's like okay, I got to do it. Right. Do you think yeah. um, it's, um when you first start writing, was it almost easier? Like I, I've talked to quite a few people about writing, and like it seems like a as a teenager, I can just write whatever all the time, just keep coming out with stuff. Did you yeah. notice that at all? Yeah, you don't. I think you don't think about it. It's just like mm. you're compelled to do it, and it just. I didn't. Yeah, I never had to think about it. I don't remember ever thinking about it as a kid, or as a teenager. Right. It was just like. I don't remember trying to make myself do it ever, but I wrote, you know, dozens of terrible songs <laughs> and that weren't even like, I guess my dream was to someday, someday play them for people, but I wasn't playing them for anyone. So it was just this, this drive to express myself in some kind of way. Um, and that continued that continued well into my twenties and even with like stump the host, those songs, I just would just write songs and write songs. And it was so fun to have a band right? and to think, Oh, how will the band play this? You know, Ooh, how that, you know, that was, I just remember bringing all kinds of different songs to the band and it was just such a thrill to try them out and play. And, you know, every time we had a gig, I was like, Oh, we got to play a new song every gig. So, you know, I'd write a new song for that which I guess was a kind of a deadline, but it was super fun. It wasn't, Yeah. it didn't feel like a grind. I think it wasn't until uh, probably toward the end of Stump the Host, I probably started feeling pressure and feeling like, oh, I can't, I can't just write songs all the time right. like this. Well, there's <laughs> what a, there's, am I going to write about? Right. There's the input output theory, right? You got to take in yeah. input out. You got to experience the shit. Right experience yeah. um so when when did dolly varden come when, when did stump the host become dolly varden um around like stump the host stump the host sort of disintegrated around 93 and we got in a for various reasons we had a publishing deal with polygram that was, and then there was lots of music biz interest, and it sort of messed up. I just I think yeah. it messed up the band. It it pulled us in directions that it really was a fun, fun, fun band that was kind of all over the place stylistically, and the having the record labels sniffing around and talking about, well, you should do this or you should do this or you got to lose your drummer and get a new drummer or you got to you know, and it just messed with us. And we we're like, you know, of course we wanted it, but um, it, yeah, it, it just pulled the whole thing apart. So 
Dolly, you know, Diane and I at that point were married and had a had a little kid, um, and we knew we wanted to keep singing together. So, um, so that's how Dolly Varden started around probably ninety four, ninety five. The first record was in ninety five. Okay, and like that was a you guys did all that on four track, right? That was all like a DIY yeah. deal, right? Yeah, well, that was because we had no money, so we did it on the <laughs> four track. That's awesome, though. That makes it. That's that's where the real deal stuff comes out. You know, that's when it's yeah when it matters the most when it's a hundred percent in your hands and you can make it exactly <laughs> how you want to be. It was really, really fun. It was really, really fun, and it was such a thrill. Like back then, the radio station, like even the big commercial radio station here, would play local music. And um, they played that record on the radio, like in like drive time. It was amazing to hear those songs we made on a four track coming right. over the radio. It was just, it was, yeah, it was a huge thrill. That's sick. That's so awesome. When did uh, like with with Dolly Varden, like as far as like songwriting, is it a split between you and your wife, or like is that more of a group collective effort? Oh. It's um it's primarily me. Diane wrote more early on. But okay. the first record has maybe it's like a third to two thirds me. Gotcha. I mean she's been writing less. Although this group that we're in now, this uh monthly songwriting group, she's been writing a lot again. So at some point hopefully we'll get more Diane songs out in the world. That'd be awesome. Is there like a as as far as like um because did she study music too? Was she coming, or was she just a a fan of music? No, she just. Um, well, actually, that's not true. She was a she was a a singer, like a classical okay singer. She went to the Interlochen Arts Academy in Michigan as a for high school for, as a singer. Wow. So, but um, she mostly credits the harmony singing thing with the singing with her dad. Her dad was a huge music fan and knew all the old folk songs. So, um, yeah, singing singing harmony with her dad. Interesting. I mean, to do that type of like classical singing, you got to learn like three languages. You got to learn French and German and like, <laughs> yeah. Italian. It's not an easy like just learning the thing. It's like I gotta learn whole different dialects and context. Of, mm-hmm. But uh, and the, the kind of like shift it to this recent record um her dad inspired your in-laws right inspired some of the the retreat from songwriting right and music in general well yeah he died in thanksgiving of 2017 and he was an old guy so it wasn't that wasn't too much of a shock although it was it was sad right the hard the hard one was her mom who died shortly thereafter. She had a stroke and then died in early 2018. And that was just, um, that was really, really hard for everybody. She was really holding, she held a lot together for everybody. She was an incredible person and was kind of, had become like a a mom to me too. I definitely felt it. Yeah. I felt it pretty powerfully. And, um, I was dealing also with sort of coming to terms with stuff that went happened that had happened in my family. 
Um, yeah, so the, that was a sort of a collapse of, of things and just kind of like, ugh. So I took a break. Yeah, I took right. a break from... Rightly so. That's some heavy shit. <laughs> like, yeah. Mixed all yeah. together and like, that is, yeah. So like, but with that break within, was it just taking time for yourself? Or is that when you started to like, just, it was, mm-hmm. it, because, was music in, in her family... Did that resonate, like, was it, I'd imagine just, if her dad was that into folk music, I imagine her mom was, imagine, did that, like. I don't know. Yeah? I don't know if Phyllis, I mean, I think Phyllis liked music, but it wasn't, no, it wasn't a thing for her, really. Okay. It was, so. Yeah. But still that, because with that kind of, like, space you give yourself to open, uh, to to catch the phrase or to, uh, or, Mm -hmm. you know what I mean, or just, let the the whimper of an emotion fall into a thing. Like, it sounds like all those experiences and all that stuff you're working through at that time, too heavy to allow that space, maybe? Or had maybe, to do it in a different maybe. way? I think I had run myself ragged, and I just... Okay. Uh, uh, I was playing in a bunch of different bands as a sideman, and... Um, I just want, I just said, I can't do any of this anymore. So I quit, I quit all those bands. I didn't take any shows. I didn't write any songs. I think I just needed to clear out and not, not think about it. Right. To kind of like what I was telling people was like, you know, I I just need to figure out why I even do this in the first place. Like what, why, why do I do this? I've, you know, I've been on this pursuit, this sort of hot pursuit (laughs) for since i was you know 14 right and uh it just i think i just went to exhaustion that was prompted by the deaths of those people and you know the politics of the with the state of the world and just right. being so <laughs> so freaked out and disappointed in in people um so uh, yeah i just needed to stop and I did. It's a, all that put together is a, it's interesting because like when you do music full time, you do not just that. You're not just doing your thing on your stage for your show, but just with the way the world is, you're you got to take a million different gigs and like and teaching yeah. teaching as much as you have. Like, cause it, that's, that was the next thing after the record store, right? was jumping into teaching for the old school yes. folk. Okay. And like, and doing all the other side gigs where you're supporting and then have to be enthralled with what you're doing and be like, that's, it, it's relentless. Yeah. Yeah. So it, it makes sense that you'd have to scale back and figure out what, now did the Richard songwriting class was that hit home really hard, right? Mm-hmm. And yeah, so I signed up for this thing. He does Richard Thompson does this yearly uh week long thing and the Catskills that I'd always kind of had my eye on. I was like, well, that would be fun. And then when Phyllis died, Diane's mom died, I was talking to Diane and I was like, I think I should do this thing. She's like, Yeah, just you should just do it. So I signed up for it. It's a lot of money. But the the big one of the big reasons was because Patty Griffin was um, 
the get like special guest songwriting teacher that year. And I'm, I'm a huge fan of hers, like just, you know, crazy super fan. Yeah. Um, and so sort of just sitting with her, she did these, you know, group classes where there's you know, probably 15 people and just talking about, you know, talking about songwriting, be able to ask her questions directly. And then she, she gave us songwriting assignments and, um, you know, so I played a, played a song for her and got good feedback. It was just <laughs> nice. really, really inspiring. I felt yeah. like a little kid again. I felt that kind of, you know, um, rush of just the joy of creation and, um, yeah, it was cool. It was very cool. So I came home from that and wrote basically all the songs on this new record. I wrote basically a double album. I have a whole other side of a whole other, you know, 45 minutes of music. That's this was the the project was originally going to be a double LP. Um, but it just seemed like too much that nobody was willing to put out a double LP and I didn't have the money to do it myself. And I wanted it to be on a record, so on a label. So, gotcha. um, yeah, so it's a single LP, but it's, I had a double LP worth of material. So that'll come out soon, I guess. Yeah. Kind of maybe the, early next year. Okay. That's it. It's amazing. Um, can, can I ask like what type of assignments before I go on my thought, like what type of songwriting assignments were, were assigned during this, like this. this oh, the one this, was she played um, Screaming Jay Hawkins. I put a spell on you. Yeah. And she said, I want you to write a song inspired by this song. And there's a song on the new record called I Will Never Stop Being Sorry. That that was that's the song I wrote for that assignment. Which is kind of okay. basically I takes, can hear the, that takes the the basic chord progression and uh and Jane, you know, adjusts it. But she also told like write the song that you've been afraid to write or that you don't, you know, that the song that's yeah, the the song that you've that you've been afraid to write. And I think that was it. And so it, I think I combined those. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. Okay. It's it's those like small premises that can have yeah. big big reveals. Totally. Like, totally. In, unless you think about it or put that in front of you as the question to answer, you wouldn't do that. Man, these, these classes seem really, really awesome. Yeah. Um, and it's interesting, like, as far as like anyone who's, I guess this, this applies to anyone for any creative endeavor that you do. Like the, once a little bit of like positive feedback (laughs) inspires so much later. Right. Like, and maybe I can, I can relate I can explain it through music, but, but you know, the, how many times do you get no as, as can I play here? No. Can I open for them? No. Can you help me record this? Probably not. Um, do you think this verse fits here? No. Like you just live in this world of being told no. (laughs) Oh, it's so true. I mean, booking shows. Oh my God. That is the worst, especially back in the day when you had to call people. Right. It was horrible because they'd just be like, call next week. You know, a lot of times you wouldn't even get a no. You'd just get this like, call me next week, call me next. And you just go, that could go on for months. Right. (laughs) I guess that still kind of happens now with email. Like, yeah, you know, let's let's touch base in a month. 
Hello? A month later. <laughs> I know. No response. Like, <laughs> uh, yeah. But it, uh, uh, the kind of, kind of, it's so I always find that so that this little bit of inspiration does so much and like a little bit of sunlight will make a plant grow. Like all these mm. little things do so much and like it's, you never know when you're doing that for someone and like, it, it like, you mm. never, you know what I mean? Like it's such an mm. interesting, like, yeah thing that something so small can radically change someone's perspective of life right. you know especially in this like creative endeavor like field of of, of living and uh hmm. so that's that's so awesome that the, you, you went to this class and the, after teaching all these classes as a as someone who teaches just to know that going back to classes still pays off you know right, is inspiring right. to hear absolutely um, hey, you know what? Um, speaking of teaching, I'm sorry. I, I actually have a another lesson. I wonder okay. if could we continue this later this afternoon, possibly? One week later. Sure. Um, but and I think this actually worked out for the better because I ordered your book right, and I didn't get it by the time we were talking last time. But there's been the I got it like the next day, so I've had time to read it. And oh, wow. get to get to do part two with the questions I would have came up with with that. So <laughs> okay, I'm glad cool. we're I'm glad we're getting to do this. Um, Excellent. But before we dive into into that, um, I wanted to ask you about twenty two rubber bands. Okay. Like that, the melodies behind that, and the, going into that falsetto, it's such a beautiful song and beautifully written. But I don't know the narrative. I don't. You know what I mean? Like I feel oh. like it's hitting some specific. And, uh, mm-hmm. and not to be like, tell me what your song's about, because it can be about nothing, and that's totally cool. But I, I think it's, it's hitting a little more home with with the rest of the content of the record. But um, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that that one's that one's a little more cryptic for sure. Um, um, the story is, and I don't mind telling the story because I don't think it it undermines the concept. I think it helps sometimes. Sometimes when people find out what songs are about, they they are disappointed. But I think in this right. case, it's it's important to know. Um, when my kid was little, like they're now twenty nine, but when back around four, probably pre kindergarten, so f- three four years old, maybe into five, we had a a cooperative daycare with a four different houses in the neighborhood so one day we would have the four kids another day then in one neighbor down the street had four and then anyway one of the people in the daycare was a few blocks away so i would go over there to walk uh eva home and on the way home they always found little rubber bands in the street and it became like a little mission (laughs) and uh I think they're the little rubber bands that that girls use to braid their hair is the the best explanation. But they were all over, and and by the time we got home, uh, Eva would have a handful of these rubber bands, and it was just a you know a silly, fun thing. And then so the the story is just a memory of that was just kind of a sweet time when there was really nothing to do other than make it from that house to our house at some point. And so we would often stop by this little store 
that was by a giant hole in the, in the sidewalk and we'd walk past the Johnny machine garden. And, um, so it's, it's just a little vignette of a memory of a sweet time with, uh, with my young and, and yeah. it's interesting because certain songs ruin the mystique when you learn the story, but like, also like a kind of a takeaway from take it to the bridge is to write specific from your from your perspective right yes and like, exactly and which makes so much sense because someone can relate to that specific instance way more than a broad nondescript walk in the park song you know what i mean like i think so i mean that's the thing that i've learned from the classes and then from my own writing um that people when people hear really specific details about someone's life they don't they get pictures, but it causes them to reflect on their own experiences. So I've had people that have heard that song say like, oh, this reminds me of when, you know, when my my daughter was a little kid and things we used to do. You know, so basically it causes people to reflect on their own experience. And that's basically what I, I think I do when I hear songs like that. I don't, there's an empathy thing, but there's also, it causes you to, yeah, to reflect on your own experience, similar experience. Um, with the the choice of head voice, was there um like or falsetto? Um, was there an influence out of uh the artist <laughs> we talked about last time that maybe made that choice more appealing with the how you convey yourself? <laughs> Interesting. Um, I mean, I've I've always loved the sort of falsetto like al green is one of my favorite singers i was gonna say al green all uh, right that's so cool yeah because oh man i forget it was like uh i think it's take it to the anchor or, or uh, uh, earlier solo oh, album. sweet is the anchor sweet yeah, is yeah. The anchor i'm mixing up titles now because I... <laughs> no, that's fine no problem but, um but there's one where i'm like i think that's that uh uh it's an al green almost progression and like oh yeah the the love is a blessing song. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah. And like, I was like, that has to be a thing. So okay, it's totally a thing. All right, Al yeah. Green. Yeah. <laughs> no, I. And in fact, I. Production-wise, that's the thing I've referenced the most is those, that Al Green Willie Mitchell records. Right. Like the sound of the instruments, the sound of the drums, the sound of the vocals. I'm. I mean, I've tried really hard to get the sound of the strings, and I've not. I've not mastered that yet, but um, I think I got the drums pretty good, especially like so that the opening track on the new record is, I mean, the it's the total, the intro is a exact steal from an Al Green song. <laughs> but so, um, yeah. And I, I played pre COVID. I played in an Al Green cover band here for, for a little while. That yeah. was actually pretty, pretty good. Nice. Pretty good cover band. Yeah. What were you singing, playing in that one? What was that? Yeah, it was a. It was there was three vocalists. I was one of three vocalists that took turns, and it, you know, it had horns and uh, yeah, big rhythms. It was super, super fun, super That's fun. So sick. What what tunes would you sing? Most of the greatest hits, and then a few deep cuts. But what I I had sang "Tired of Being Alone," and I sang um, "Bell" was one okay. of the ones I did. I have to go back and look at the set list and remember it's been a little while. 
That's awesome. Yeah, I, do, I can hear that in your register, in your in your vocal register. It's interesting because Al Green, like those records, are so beautiful, but they groove so hard. But it's so yeah, delicate. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like he gets. Oh, he's there. whispering. He's right. whispering sometimes. Right. Yeah, it's it's amazing. But you can hear it, and it's clear, and he right. controls yeah. that whole situation. Yeah, uh, it's stunning. It's stunning. Yeah. Uh, okay. So I mean, I think as a white, you know, white guy trying to sing like Al Green, I end up sounding like, I don't know, Beck or something like that. Um, I don't know what other people would reference, or maybe Daryl Hall does that sometimes. Okay. Yeah. But I think, you know, we're all, the white guys are all trying to sound like Al Green or any of those those great 70s falsetto singers. Right. Like, yeah. I don't know the name of the, the guy from the Spinners or the OJs, I don't know their names, but those, you know, those guys that are just like... no. It, I I agree. I, th- I I think everyone's trying to sound like Al Green. You put on that record, <laughs> yeah. everyone thinks they can hit those notes. They go for it, yeah. and you'll be yeah. surprised. And who can? You're like, oh shit. Yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, but that's so cool. All right, because right, I, I kept hearing that, and I, it wasn't just it was few, it was a, going through your discography. It was a few times that hit home. Oh, interesting. So, kind of like the 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 take it uh, or to take a, a lip from the book, um, you there's this quote in there where you say, uh, oh, "How am I gonna? I can't I, I can't say it verbatim, but basically, pop music is, is up for just steal it, take the thing and use it to express yourself." I, you said it more eloquently. Mm. Um, uh, or uh, the pop music is. Uh, <laughs> hold on, hold on. Here we go. Pop music has been written by thieves, so don't feel guilty about borrowing ideas. And I was like, <laughs> <It's>, yeah. <laughs> that's so punk rock and so on point. <laughs> well, it's true. I mean, nothing, yeah, it's all repurposed, everything, right? Right. And, like, I, I just think that's such a beautiful point to bring up in, in like, an idea of making your own ideas is we all take from something else. I know this is right. kind of like... Now we were talking about a few of the new tunes, and now it's like slamming into the book because that's just where my brain's been at. But no like, problem. Um, but I think that's such an important lesson to take, and to be able to like it, it just even referencing like Al Green. If you look in those records, how much of, of that's taken from somewhere else, and like and then continues to be uh, pulled apart and put in other things. Like hip hop's like right. such a clear cut example of that. Sure, sure. No, it's a. It's a logical extension, expansion. I mean, that's the thing is the building blocks are all the same. So it's how it's the nuances and the sound of the person's voice and the way that no two voices sound alike. Um, And, you know, we're all we're all dealing with the raw material of the same 12 pitches. And and most of the songs are in four four times. So, you know, there's not a huge amount of variety in the the raw materials, but boy, the, the little nuances make all the difference. Just the, you know, slightly delaying the snare drum makes a huge difference. Right. So there's, you know, there's, there's a lot of room for variation. One of the biggest things that people worry about in songwriting class is that they're stealing or that they, you know, that's something, that something's not original. So I have to remind, you know, I just say that every time, don't worry about it. Do not worry. You're not going to get sued unless you're selling a million copies of something. And if you do get sued, then just say, sorry, you, you know, and share the royalty. <laughs> but, um, 
which is, I mean, the most recent version of that that I know of is that Sam Smith song that sounded like a Tom Petty song. I don't know that anybody realized it until it came out. And I think they, Tom Petty and him just came to an agreement. They're like, all right, we'll just share the railway till there's no, no harm, no foul. Right. So, right. And they're both good songs. So. Yeah. And like two different genres, two different. Um, right. At one point you're going to, you're going to hit upon the same or like grouping of like three yeah. notes or two notes in a particular rhythm. Yeah. Like, uh, there's no getting around that. You you also had a really good way to put it in the book. You said, um, "Don't worry about being original. Worry about being honest." Yeah, you know, which I thought was a beautiful way to encapsulate that whole like the at the beginning because that's what that's what is conveyed through songwriting. That's what resonates with people is your honest expression. Well, and the truth is, the more honest you are, the more unique you'll be. Like if you're right. true to yourself. And you let your true voice come through and your true thoughts come through, then you will be unique. You will be original because no two people are alike. So it's it's a sort of a win-win, or it's a it's a it's a mind game to get you to be original. Because I think people are so worried about whether what they're doing is valid or not that they copy. I mean, I you know I, everyone does that. I did that too. You copy things because you think that's what it's supposed to. That's how it's supposed to work. Right. But that. But then you end up just sounding like a, a not quite as good version of the thing you're copying. Right. Right. Or it's it's interesting because like uh, when you start learning, right, you learn the cover songs, and there's that. Uh, mm-hmm. Are you familiar with uh, Mary Oliver, the poet? Yeah. 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 Oh, yeah. Okay. Cool. She's got all these really rad books on how to read and understand and write poetry. Um, oh. And there's one called, I think it's just called The Handbook of Poetry. And like, um, Oh, I got to get that. I, I only know her sort of nature of poetry. And right. Um, it's be- very beautiful, but I didn't know she had a cr- sort of creative writing book. She, yeah, she did a, I think she oh, did cool. lectures and had like a whole Oh, course. cool. There's, there's two of them that I've found. There's one called The... Rules of a uh, rules for the dance, which is all about metered poetry, right? Like okay, it, yeah. It gets real specific and like okay, which is very musical. It's very rhythmic sure. and like um, absolutely. And it, it's interesting, uh, but I'll finish my thought before I go into that. Um, uh, there's this um, quote from her from the poetry handbook, and I'm I'm probably gonna say it wrong, but basically it was like to fully express yourself, you need to have perseverance or um, dedication. Um, Shit, what was the other thing? You need to be dedicated <laughs> and, and, and use – I can't remember how, how she said it now. Now i got to have all my quotes in front of me. Um, <laughs> <laughs> did it, uh, did express yourself through uh, dedication, uh, replication, and something else. Ah, oh, gosh. Uh, uh, but basically, basically it was the point okay. like you have to express yourself. you got to learn from the, the shoulders of giants. Right, like, totally. Yes, yes. Oh man, man! I wish I had that right now. That was a whole cool, good point of this interview. Where I'm just stumbling on words. Well, I mean, yeah, <laughs> I think that's true for any art, right? Yeah. I mean, you learn, you learn through imitation, and you learn all the rules, and then you then you are free to sort of expand and explore your own creative impulses. It's the kind of thing where John Coltrane learned every every scale known to humans and could play inside out of, you know, a chord change, every measure or every bar or every beat. 
and then he made music that had no chords, you know? Right. And so through learning all the, you know, all the quote unquote rules, he, he found freedom. Mm. So I think, I mean, that's kind of, I mean, you know, he's also a super genius, but. <laughs> right, right. Um, but that's the takeaway, right? Yeah. Is like, yeah, right. Once you can learn all the all the ways you, one thing can be done, you can do it the way no one's done it before. And, right. And still do it the way everyone wants you to do it. Right. Uh, it's it's interesting with um with songwriting like that because, like, some things that – or just even – okay, even to quote quote train, like, some things that are so profound – like you get so caught up in the weeds of like, oh, he's hyperimposing these melodies over a, or, or these chord changes over a over a blues progression. Do you hear right. those? You know what I mean? Like into the average listener, they're like, what is going on? So there's this freedom that you gain, and also this uh this lack. Like, I don't know. I think through mm-hmm. going through that, that makes that genius. You, like it's yeah. all, it almost to the average right. uh, uh viewer, listener, writer. Maybe it wouldn't seem as profound as it is and i guess and something a little closer to home would be bob dylan learning every woody guthrie song right going to visit woody guthrie in the hospital getting to know him and sort of like using that as his template and then within a year completely bypass not bypassing that but expanding on it and and making you know finding his own voice but he he basically learned the rules of how to make up songs by and it's deep, immersive study of Woody Guthrie. Right. Like, the, he had all those talking blues songs that were very right. Guthrie-esque. Um, but, yeah, but through imitation, I think that's that's where you find yourself. And in, in to some degree, mm-hmm. like, I think uh, to speak upon, like, sometimes you do come out sounding like a, the, the diet version of fill-in-the-blank. But right. um, also at some points, too, you can, like, wear your influence on your shoulders and, like, find a, a way to make it – like Steve Ray Vaughan sounded a lot like Hendrix, but and he wasn't, you know what I mean? But uh, right. he definitely did his own thing with it. And mm-hmm. like you can celebrate your influences so everyone else can be a um, um, so everyone else can celebrate those influences with you and how mm-hmm. you incorporate right, it right. To, uh, to your own, um, right? But I think that's a fine line, I think that's a fine line of knowing yourself, which comes through everything previously of trying to be someone else and then finding you. I think you're right. Um, but uh, the, the kind of so out of this uh, songwriting book, take it to the bridge. The, the, what I found was really cool about it was like there's this discussion at the front, like the big chunk of it, like the first hundred pages is like an interview, and then the next portion of the book was the assignments, and like mm-hmm. then like out of all those assignments, there's like ten, thirteen. Um, which one do you find yourself going back to? More often. Oh wow! Oh my gosh! Oh boy, that's a tough question because I don't. <laughs> I maybe a little combination of all of um, the the melody stuff. There's a melody assignment. There's a storytelling assignment. The form stuff I use all the time. So like the yeah. Beatles form one, okay. the A A B A B A song with refrain i use that form a lot um i mean they're all outgrowths of things that i've learned over the last you know 40 years of writing songs so i would they're probably 
I probably use all of them. I don't use like there's one that there's a couple of trick ones like use your phone number to generate a yeah. melody. I don't I don't use that. That's a good start um, for someone who has it. I yeah, it was a unique way to think about it. But like, sure. Right in the style of I mean you know I write in this I write in the style of things. One of the songs on the new record, the one called "I Will Never Stop Being Sorry," was it actually. Patty Griffin gave us any assignment at that uh, that songwriting workshop. It was to write a song somehow influenced by um, "I Put a Spell on You" by Screaming Jay Hawkins. Right. So that's where that I grabbed basically the groove and the the baseline from that song and wrote a new song on top of it. So I don't know if that's in the style of, but using using other source material as the sort of bed to put something new on. Right. What about the about the chords in the moving in fourths? I found that really interesting. And using the oh yeah, I use that all the time. I mean that um, that's kind of just Western music harmonic sort of progression one hundred and one stuff. That right, you know, as you study old, like especially the great American songbook stuff, that all those progressions move with bass root motion in fourths. Um, and since I studied all that stuff at, with my guitar teacher in Idaho and with, uh, with, um, at Berkeley, I sort of like, I kind of already think in those terms. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. Cause like I found the, the parallel minor stuff really, really intriguing because like you think of like yeah. the secondary dominance and like you hear that a lot in like the, uh, ragtime and jazz sure and yes like yes all those like movements like that and i've never really thought of it as in fourths which I, that was pretty oh. profound I, like i've never analyzed it like that but that makes sense and i never thought well here's it. why i'll tell you why and I'm, it, i might have written this in the book but i can't remember is that in my classes i'm teaching almost almost all of them are guitar players occasionally we'll get a piano player but for the most part yeah. they're guitar players and the guitar strings are already in fourths. Right. So rather than saying it's the circle of fifths backwards, it made more mm. sense for me to say, well, you already have E, A, D, G, and you already know the names of your strings, and they're already arranged in that order. So just to extend it out in, you know, in both directions yeah. so that so that they see it that way. And I think it was just, just it's basically for guitar players to understand root motion in fourths rather than introducing the circle of fifths, which is very confusing to people. So Right. It seems way yeah. more intimidating than I think it yes. actually is. Like you're the right, exactly. It's not, but it it seems like it is. It's a <laughs> geometry? What's going on? I'm hearing right. songs. Right, I know. <laughs> Math. Ah. Exactly. Um, the parallel minor thing was from studying Beatles songs. Oh. And I think there was some in-depth study of the harmonic content of Beatles songs um, on some online discussion. And that's where I started hearing talk of the parallel minor because that was not part of a discussion at Berkeley. And I, I went... I I mean I I sort of eat up the harmony part of of music theory. I just love chord theory and right. it just it makes me really happy. I don't know why. <laughs> but um parallel minor as far as I recall was never it was never introduced that way. They would have called it a, they would call it a, just a key change, but they wouldn't right. call it but with Beatles songs 
they go in and out of major to minor, like major to parallel minor a lot. And once I sort of unlocked that door, it made so much more sense, like how the Beatles songs were, how they were thinking. And who knows how they how they came across that, but obviously they loved that sound because it's in, once you start looking at all the songs, you're like, oh my God, there it is again. It's in, it's in at least half the songs they're doing some grab from parallel minor. That's super interesting. Cause like, it is, it's something in at least my music education that was, you, you learn about it, but it's just an extra question on the test. You don't really dive into that at all. Right. So to see it as a, as a songwriting tool, I was like, Oh, that's really, that's really cool. It's but, really cool. So, yeah. I love it. Um, and also I find it like, with harmony and traditional harmony and learning how like sevenths and resolve and the Neapolitan whatevers and like, you know what I mean? Like learning yeah. that type of movement, it does have that like, it, it, it seems like it, it goes to all this resolve, right? And it just wants to get back to home. And that's like the, that's like the dopamine spike, right? Right. That's, right. that's like, this is where it goes. And you kind of mentioned – uh, not kind of. You do mention in this book um, about reading Daniel Levitin's uh, the, the how your brain works on music, right? Yeah. Um, which like uh, I've I've read that a few years ago, and I've studied music therapy at CSU, so that was kind of like oh cool a big chunk of it. And like not his book, his book was on my own time, but it's such a fascinating read. And like yeah. um, to dive into that as a songwriter, like. And especially since you've been writing songs before that, how did the enlightenment of like, oh, your brain just hears rhythm? You know, what I mean, like the little tidbits yes. from that book. How much did that change your perspective on site on songwriting, or maybe how much did it redefine certain elements of songwriting for you? You know, I think it was more how to approach recording. Mm, okay. In that, I think two things happened. I was reading that book where he talks about how rhythm is the first thing that our brains perceive and latch onto because right. it's in the brain stem. Right. Yep. And, um, um, and at the same time I was reading interviews with Paul Simon, where he was talking, basically saying the same thing. Mm -hmm. And that's what caused him to move from harmonic, harmonically really rich songs to more rhythmic based songs. So that would be, like hearts and bones into into Graceland, right, right, right. That he wanted more of a rhythmic underpinning rather than a harmonic uh, scaffolding, because that he wanted music that was more. I don't know what the right word is, but that was more immediately gratifying or capturing. Um, and I and then I th I think you know I I read the magazine tape op. Okay. And that's, I've learned a lot about recording. I pretty much learned everything about recording through tape op and trial and error. And there was discussion in there too about if the rhythm track is messed up, the song's never going to work. Right. So it was all these things coalescing at the same time where I thought, okay, I, I need to concentrate more on the rhythmic bed of these songs to make them i don't know to make them more enjoyable right well it, it's interesting because like through uh daniel's work and like um i'm trying to also uh tout uh from nmt studies like your brain like once you have that your brain's like or the what's the gestalt uh, um uh 
expectancy principle, principle of expect expectations. I don't know that. Don't All know right. that one. All right. Um, I think it's in Levinton's book. It's in a lot of uh, NMT books, but the Gestalt philosophies, uh, 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 no, not philosophies. Um, I'm just blanking out. But anyway, the ex- expectation principle, right? So your brain's predicting um, what's about oh, yes, to happen. Oh, yes, yes, yes. Okay. Right. right. And it likes it. So when there's something like Paul Simon, like there's a rhythm that repeats – your brain's already in this dopamine, like it's it's right. reacting. It likes what it's doing, and then if you put something on top of it, you're going to pay more attention to it. And like, right, exactly, yes. For me, like when I when I learned that, I was like, oh, that makes sense. Why bands like uh, James Brown, like right. you know, that's nothing but a groove, and then like a, a right. shout chorus repeated a lot. You know, this expectation thing keeps happening, keeps happening, and it's a really profound thing, and like it makes like trance music seem very like enlightening in that sense and like totally music that maybe would have seemed boring but that it, 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 it's like this platform for other things well right and when you get a sort of hypnotic rhythmic thing going any little thing that occurs on top of it you're you're keenly aware of which is yeah that's really cool right. you know richard thompson said a really cool thing a really interesting thing at that workshop I went to, he said, all great pop songs have some element of a drone hmm. in them. Interesting. <laughs> Which, I mean, it seemed like a hugely uh, grand statement, but it the idea that there's some kind of a tone somewhere in there that's, that's basically constant. Hmm. Either a bass line or a melody note or something going on in the thing that has a that has like that sort of hypnotic draw in it and i think he was talking about when he says pop music i think he means non-classical music going back as far as history because i mean indian classical music and celtic music and certainly like bagpipes and all that kind of stuff it's all drone all drone music right and it has that it has that hypnotic thing that I think also pulls us in and lures us in hypnotically. And then all the stuff added on top of it, maybe your mind is more open to or something. I don't know. That makes sense. Right. Like it's yeah. a, it's a almost like all secular music in a way. But right. It's interesting because even like a, a historically, like um, music that was in the church was pretty, pretty just like uh, um, octaves, right? And we weren't doing yeah. thirds or anything. Or even through music history, it gets crunchier and more uh, more, more tension. And uh, yes. But I guess it can all be traced, in a weird way, it can all be traced back to that one pitch. That's a pretty profound statement. <laughs> that's, yeah, right? That's really rad, yeah. I dove into his records since we talked, and man, he's an insane writer too. Amazing, yeah, yeah. Did you, uh, how'd you, so just, were you aware of his records? Oh yeah, very much so. Yeah. Okay. So you just from diving in the because it feel I feel like listening to him I'm like this is a songwriter songwriter. You yes. know what I mean? Like there's this is not just like uh, you wouldn't hear this on the radio and be like oh that's I'm gonna dive into that more. You would have to right. find this guy and like yeah, and he has like he has just rabid super fans, you know. Rightly so. Of, yeah. Rightly yeah. so. Like in <laughs> right. Good. So, oh, good. It's here. I know it. Okay. Good. <laughs> Excellent. Oh, one more. One more thing before I wrap up. I wanted to ask you about is like you toured with the Government Mule. <laughs> we did. How is that? Um, well, 
I mean, it was fun, but it was it was a terrible match. The the reason yeah. it happened is because the the woman who owned Evil Teen Records was and thinks still is a government mule's manager and is married to Warren Haynes. So oh, okay. she she threw us on on the front end of a bunch of their Midwest shows. I mean, you know, they, they were super nice and they're incredible and they fill, you know, they fill big rooms, but we <laughs> just Dolly Varden set up, you know, and played. I, I mean, people were pleasant, but it wasn't, yeah, it was not the right, it was not the right. <laughs> right, right. It's a different style because they're there for the yeah. jams and the guitar solos. and like... Totally. No, and we're, yeah, we're like kind of, you know, folk rock. Right. It's it... kind of quiet, so... That's still sick, though. <laughs> Be around <laughs> musicians like that, you know. what I mean, just oh yeah, I mean, they're all they were sweethearts, yeah. Oh, that's so cool, awesome, man. Well, hey, thanks so much. And, all right, uh, cool. Beans. Great, thank you so much. Yeah, thank you, Steve. All right, all right. Take care, my take friend. Take care. All right, bye. bye.